0: I wanted to spend a little bit of time and um, just talk about some of the different things that we've been discussing over this series, and and hold it in a, a slightly larger perspective of you know what meditation is about and how we bring it to the various things that we experience. So David and I have repeatedly said that you know it's very much our intention to use this time together. To emphasize that the things that we experience, which are challenges, are not uh, to avoid, but to learn how to embrace, and that meditation is not about just kind of zoning out into a kind of a, a spaced out, peaceful, disconnected, disembodied state, which might feel like what we'd like to get to. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so, you know, one of the things that happens with meditation is, is that as we begin to focus on what is, layers of the onion begin to open up. And sometimes we see and feel and experience things that um, have edges to them. Some of them it's more than just a little bit edgy. You know, it can be phenomenally challenging. And yet, when we're able to meet what arises in a way which has um, skill and compassion and stillness, as its essence, then we can see also that the things that we find very challenging can be in fact the compost that transforms our heart, opens our heart, and brings us to the kind of stillness and peacefulness and fullness that we're hoping for. So the irony is, is that the way out is in, you know? The way out of suffering is to touch it, to move into it, to embrace it, and to feel it. So held within this larger sphere is a kind of basic understanding. What we need is to have a, 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 an understanding that, that ethics, that living with integrity has a tremendous importance and impact. So it's not really possible to come and sit down and meditate and have any hope to have much success if, if our life is filled with um, areas where we're engaging in harming ourselves or harming other people or whether there's not a lot of scrupulousness with honesty, or whether we, we get together with people and, you know, as a kind of way of feeling bonded and close with some, we shred and rip others apart, you know? Which is a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a contemporary um, shortcut to bonding, is to, is to agree about how terrible somebody else is, you know? But when we recognize that if we engage in that, if we do that, there's going to be a kind of a reverb effect in our own mind and bodies that then we have to deal with. So to start with a ground of ethics then creates um, a level of integrity, which means that what we are doing in the life, what we are doing towards ourselves, what we're doing towards each other in the way we're engaging in the world, has harmlessness as its basis That creates a foundation to be able to work with what then arises in our mind. Generosity is another thing that we've talked about in many different ways, and I just feel tremendously supported by the kind of, um, the way people have been responding. It's very touching. And the reason why generosity has been heralded by the Buddha as a foundation for practice is because there are few things that tether us to our own goodness more directly. So the result of giving is not the person that we are giving to, it's ourself. We are the greatest recipient of our own generosity to somebody else. Because as we feel that harness tethering ourselves to our own goodness, that gives us the ballast to work with some of the stuff that is edgy that we have to deal with. And the last time when David and I were talking and we were talking about working with trauma, I was using the the image of being tethered to one's own goodness like a safety harness as being essential. It's not just a nice idea, it's actually like a prerequisite to having the skill to be able to work with trauma in a significant and effective way. So we've got ethics and generosity and then concentration, which is the ability to allow the mind to still and to focus and to settle, so that we're not just carried around like with a hurricane or being hijacked by every thought that comes through our system. There's some measure of settledness and stillness and composure and capacity to reflect on what is arising. So a lot of the time we relate to what is arising, movement like fly paper and fly. We just get stuck to it. So you know, stuff comes up and we get stuck into it. We're not actually reflecting on it. As this is something that's arising, it becomes: this is who I am. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm furious. I'm lonely. You know, I'm freaked out. I'm depressed. So there's an identification with what is happening rather than an observation of what is happening. And so in order for there to be an observation of what is happening, there has to be enough stillness that one is observing from rather than just being caught out. Now, as a maybe a little bit more experienced meditator, you can stop on the dime and just notice that life, you know, there's this sense of tremendous confusion. Okay? And these days, I hear a lot of people talking about intensity, overwhelm, complexity, and we have an idea that meditation is about not feeling those things, that somehow meditation is, you know, that overwhelm is not a valid object of meditation. And that is not correct, overwhelm is a completely valid object of meditation. We don't like it, we have all kinds of opinions about it being there. But we can know what it is like to feel overwhelmed. You know, our body feels agitated, our mind feels agitated, everything feels agitated. But in the moment of knowing overwhelm as overwhelm, we're on the path. We're right there on the path. It it does not have to disappear in order for us to release our wanting it to be otherwise. And as we release our wanting it to be otherwise, we come right back into the cessation of wanting, the cessation of the suffering connected with wanting it to be otherwise. Right there is stillness. Right there is peace. So what we need to understand is that the kind of peace that we're looking for is not a peace that is conditioned by things being the way we want them to be. It's a peace that comes from letting go of wanting. Okay? Now, I just had a recent bear experience a couple of days ago. Last Thursday, an hour and a half before coming into this class, I was in the Garden of the Gods. And I was sitting in um, one of my favorite back canyons. And the canyon is about, I don't know, 10 feet wide or so. And I'm dealing with a lot of sadness because of my dad dying not long ago, and it just stirred up quite a lot for me. So I went to the garden because I was feeling very sad, and to me that is a place that holds me. So the sadness had released, and I was sitting upward, and I was feeling very still, and I was very quiet. So I spend hours in the garden of the gods, quiet and still, and I notice all kinds of things, because most of the time when we're out in nature, we're walking, or we're talking, or we're all kinds of things going on. But when you're still, there's all kinds of things that you see, or hear, and so it's quite lovely. So I have all kinds of adventures with creatures, because they come. They come and check me out. So I was listening, and I heard some footsteps, and I opened my eyes, and there was a bear. And she was about as far away as the door jam is, so not very far at all. And she wasn't, she wasn't tiny, but she wasn't enormous. She was about three-quarters to being enormous, so she was about, she was about that big. And she saw me, and she stopped, and she came over and hesitated, and then started walking. And I figured, well, there's, you know, there's 10 feet here. If she wants to walk past. She can walk past, and there's no problem. And she was relaxed. So I'm highly sensitive to feeling. That's one of the things that I, I, can, I can detect feeling very quickly and notice how it changes. So I was peaceful and still and quiet. She was relaxed, and so I didn't see that there was any need to be worried about what was happening she walked right over to me, and she stood right in front of me, and her face was this far away from my face. So we were looking at each other, and her face was right at my face, and I was I was still still and peaceful because she was still still and peaceful, okay? So we were in a kind of peaceful, um, empathetic resonance with each other. And then somehow she stopped, and she stopped, and she touched my knee, and when she touched my knee with her nose, Something shifted. I became real. I don't know what she thought I was before, but suddenly I became real, and she bolted. And so she ran back, and she ran up the side of the mountain, and then she came back around, and I watched her. And the second she bolted my heart, I mean, it was just like, it's just about, I mean, I'm surprised that it didn't, jump out of my chest, cavity, you know. And I, when I sat there, and I thought, wow, this actually just happened. I can't believe it, you know. But part of the reason why this experience wasn't quite a, whatever you want to call it, a nice completion story was because the year or so before I became a nun I had another bear experience and that bear was quite different because I was staring into its cave and it came running at me and the scars on the back of my head are teeth mark. And so that whole thing was about, you know, absolute terror and working with that. But the reason why that story was such an incredible story, and it's a good Dhamma story, was because there was a surrendering into the. what happened with the fear was there was just a letting go of fear. And mind went into a state of bliss. So the bear was chewing on my head and pressing my body against a branch and had a proper bear hug. My whole back was pressed against its belly. And my head was in its mouth, okay? So these marks are teeth mark. But my mind state transitioned into clarity, joy, interest, concentration, focus. And what was fascinating about it was there was complete peacefulness there, all right? There was no interest that it be otherwise. There was just a curiosity to watch how my life force was going to dissolve in that moment. Okay. Now, one of the things that we have very deeply ingrained in our systems is that our happiness is entirely dependent on getting rid of what we don't want and getting what we want. And meditation is about looking at that and beginning to turn it on its head. Where it's not like we take a magic wand and go loop loop and put kind of pink marshmallow goo on top of reality. And so, you know, we, we superimpose this narcissistic kind of unreal reality on top of another reality. It's about looking at things and being able to see the beauty in situations, even when apparently it is not at all beautiful. So it delights me to hear David's reflections on joy. And delights me to hear that, you know, the way that we can think about things in order to bring this quality of mind to our, to the floor. Because when we are able to look at challenges and see how beneficial they are for us, how they can open our hearts, how they can teach us patience, how they can bring us a level of of maturity that allows us to be fully who we are in this world in a way where we don't need to be afraid, then what we're doing is we're taking the things that we're wanting to get rid of, we're wanting to have be different, and we're using them in a way that is tremendously beneficial for our own growth and our own uh, maturity as people in this world growing up, living as, you know, with each other. So the reason why the bear last week, for me, was a lovely thing was because, you know, somebody said that's really, that was, you know, made a remark, that it was amazing that it was possible to be still and quiet even after the last time I had a close encounter with bear had a slightly different uh, impact on my system. But the point of practice is, is that we open this stuff up and we release it so that for me, bear is not a terrible, horrible monster thing. For me, when I see bear, my experience is a blessing. You know, I feel totally blessed when I see a bear. You know? And so we take the stuff that can lock into our systems in a particular way and can be traumatic, we can open it up, release it, and turn it around so that we can see the enormous richness that has come from that. And I don't use this in a way in order to, again, to romanticize the kind of suffering that we go through or to kind of tie a pink bow on some of the stuff that just requires a lot of tears and an awful lot of decompressions in order just to recover from. But I'm, I'm highlighting the point that, that the point of practice is, is that it isn't always about something that's just being in a lovely space together with people who are kind and interested in waking up. And yet the practice that I had before that experience and encounter with the beer in India what, however many years ago, in 1987, mostly was doing just this, sitting on cushions in lovely spaces with lovely people with clear instruction. That was the arena from which the skill level developed to be able to meet the fear in that instance. And that instance, for me, I really had the feeling that the capacity to meet the fear and be with it, and to allow it to transition, was the reason why I was still alive. What happened for me in that situation was I saw the fear and then there was the knowing of the fear. So the big mind was present. There was this cloud that was obscuring everything. It had no edges to it. The fear was huge. It was just, it was everywhere. But the mind that knew the fear wasn't frightened. And so we can use this mind that knows and meet Whatever it is that it arises, there isn't something that is too big for it, okay? The sky is big enough for all the clouds that come through it. The practice works. It totally does work. But we have to give ourselves to it, apply it, and and bring it into the places that we don't want to go. We've got to bring it into the stuff that makes us want to pull back and say, this is scary, I don't want to be there. You know, I don't want to be here. So we have frameworks, and the framework of ethics, of compassion, of concentration, of wisdom, of understanding that what we are experiencing is not who we are. It arises, but it is not who we are and then a community of people, of like-minded people who have an interest in practicing this way, helps support us, so that we can remember when we forget. And one of the ways that a community can support is by reflecting to each other your own goodness. So, you know, there comes a time when you get to know a person a little bit better than just superficially and you can see that they're looping in negative thoughts about themselves, and you can say, time out. It's not okay for you to trash yourself in front of me, you know? You can't do that. Stop. And so what we need to do as community is move into the depths where we're knowing each other well enough, there's enough trust, where we can begin to do this other deeper work of start mirroring for each other, goodness, that we are not seeing ourselves, because we're looping in the 10,000 things that is wrong. I'm not kind enough, I'm not patient enough, I'm not smart enough, occasionally I'm late. You know, it goes on and on and on, 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 on and on and on and on and on and on and on we forget the fact that the life is dedicated to waking up, that there's a tremendous commitment towards integrity, that the life is lived on generosity. We forget the basics, and we focus on the grit. Yeah? You know, one tiny little speck of dust in the eye and the whole vision is obscured. So we need to begin to open up our vision and begin to see the beauty that's present, the beauty that's here, and see that in the context of what we're doing and how that actually helps hold the things that we're working with. And as David and I mentioned, there's sometimes when we need to recognize that we're out of our depth and we need more help and we've got the resources for ourselves and to begin to pull in resources that can help us. And so there's different kinds of body work that we can do. There's different kinds of therapies that we can do. There's different ways of holding the space so that we don't turn into the fly with the flypaper. We're just stuck. Onto the impression or the sensation or the memory that's just circling, yeah. They're holding space and they're helping us bring attention and mindfulness in a way that is skillful. That is not allowing our system to get me traumatized. So here we have, um, you know, uh, uh, some tools, some sense of the territory, some sense of what happens, as well as a sense of, you know, what meditation is about and what we can do with it. And what we, we was written in the in that little flyer and what David mentioned last time is, is that this series was based on the, the, having the basic sense of understanding how to work with the foundations of body and feeling and mind objects and understanding how to work with the kind of basic stuff that arises like the, the anger and fear and sleepiness and desire and confusions that arise. Understanding how to watch things and not get stuck into them. So the ability to observe rather than to identify. So to be able to navigate with stuff then requires some foundations and all of this stuff is in books and in talks and recorded and on websites and um, it's available. But it's stuff that we need to keep re-remembering. This is where we have to um, polished so that we can meet the stuff that's harassing. So I'm going to just stop this, um, kind of framing session, change format, and then we can have discussion and questions with
1: all of us together. Yeah, that's the end of our talking, so we're open
2: to discussion.
3: I just had my students, like teach high school students, do vignettes about, um, Certain themes or concepts, and one of them was empathy. And they had to act it out in a frozen pose and then photograph it. And it, um, one of the groups had to have the concept of empathy. And I then let another class critique their photographs. They had to put them through a filter to kind of enhance the message. And this group decided to have someone in the center crying. And people around her offering her tissues. These are high school students. They're not, you know, kind of basic. Yeah. <laughs> model of empathy, yeah. Yeah. And and they they did a good job. I asked them to use body posture, and facial expression, and positioning. And um, anyway, one of the comments from the other class was, "This isn't empathy. They should be crying with her, not offering her tissues." And when you were talking about sympathetic joy, I wondered how that fits with, or is it akin to empathy? And what do you think about that idea of, you know, in Christianity they talk about weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Is that
1: mm. similar or
2: no? That's a really interesting question. I mean, however one defines empathy, but right? I, I would, I'm not going to go there critique the tissue model. Um,
3: they said that was sympathy. It wasn't empathy. I just thought it was interesting. That someone picked up on that.
0: I don't know that you can tell by, you know, somebody offering a person a tissue what's actually motivating them and yeah. what's right. happening in their heart. Good. You good. Know? So I think the difference between sympathy and empathy is not going to be necessarily visible. It's going to be felt. They were charged though with
3: figuring out a way to convey this with visual cues. So they had to do something that was. But that's another thing we don't have to go into that. I know what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying. But it would be really it would be impossible for them to convey something that was felt in a visual format. Exactly.
2: Well, I think the sympathetic joy meditation is not quite an empathy thing, right? The the idea is really it's a antidote to jealousy and envy in particular, which is a quality of mind that arises in most of us more often than we'd like, and is one of the most painful types of mind, actually, if you think of what jealousy is like, you know. uh, Jealousy more so than envy, I think. I think people get those words confused. Envy is really when you want something that someone else has. Jealousy is when (laughs) you want, if, if Amma likes you, and I'm jealous of her attention to you, I want that attention to me. That's jealousy. I'm jealous of the kindness that she bestows or the attention that she bestows to you, I'm jealous of that, right? Hence, you know, when your, your boyfriend breaks up with you and finds another girl, you get jealous of his loving her. You want the love to you, right? That's not really envy, that's jealousy. Envy is more when someone possesses something that we want without a third person in the picture. Right, jealousy is the worst, I think, and envy is related to it. And, and they're strong and painful and troubling and entangling states of mind. You know, if you think of love triangles and the jealousy when it arises. You want to strangle, you know. And even if you do not wanting to be violent, you're just internally tortured, right? And so one one antidote to that, you know, is sympathetic joy. And one way, for example, to think of it in a relational way is like this, you know my girlfriend breaks up with me and falls in love with someone else, I can experience jealousy or I can work on getting over that and think, how wonderful she's found someone she loves more than me. Okay. She's, she's happier, right? So to be sympathetic with the goodness that she's experiencing. Here also, we, we're sympathetic with the goodness that others are manifesting in the world, especially goodness, kindness. And in particular, in the Buddhist tradition, often they'll say, let's be sympathetic with the goodness and the kindness and the wisdom that really wise, highly cultivated people are bringing into the world. right?" And just to rejoice in that. To rejoice in that. And to allow it to expand our hearts. So it's not an empathy, because they're not feeling pain or anything like that. right? We're not so much trying to feel what they feel, but to allow their goodness to impact us by giving rise to joy. I don't know if you'd like to can, respond can to that. Can
3: differentiate between sympathy and recognition? What I'm hearing
2: is the recognition of joy. Yeah, in that sense I think the word sympathetic as I suggested earlier it's not in the word mudita, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's just in other words, it's not just joy. It's joy regarding the goodness of others. And hence in English people have thrown in sympathy there, but I think sympathy may not be the best term for it. I don't know if you'd like to respond to this as well.
0: Well, um... Just as a, like a lovely story. a kind of relational joy, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know, sometimes people get ticked off if somebody gets the parking spot before him. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And so, you know, a ticked off is a normal response, and a moody response was, you know, good on you. Yeah. You know, you got it, well done, yeah. you know? So rather than contract and be angry because you want it, to rejoice that they have it. That's, it's a shifting, it's a turning around, Okay. But I think, you know, David is correct with the languaging that it's not sympathy, it's it's it's, it's feeling the buoyancy of, of connecting with the joy that they have.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And yes. There's there's a lovely video out now called I Am. Yes. And when you were talking about that, what I was envisioning is there's a scene in it um, where the Dalai Lama is coming up to a group of children, and his face is just beaming, and then they turn to the children whose faces just reflect that joy. And it's about carrying that forward into the world, just focusing on that joy and connection with others to lift us all out of that focus that you were talking about on the negativity that society has. In fact, that's the whole message of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, If you haven't seen it, it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, It's called I Am and it was done by Tom Shadyak who Mm -hmm. does like um, Liar, Liar and Bruce Almighty so he does a lot of comedy. Mm -hmm. But this video was something that came out of Head injury that he'd had, and he was recovering. And while he was recovering, he was thinking, What's wrong with the world? And once he recovered, he wanted to find out. So he took his film crew and went around asking people like the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela, You know, what's wrong with the world and what's right with the world? And the answer both is, I am. So. Well,
2: to Repeat something I said before, but in a slightly different way. You mentioned you know, focusing on the joy as opposed to the negativities in the world. As I mentioned, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, reflections on the nature of samsara and the nature of greediness and the nature of corruption and violence is also an important reflection. In either case, to get too caught up in it, or to identify with it. But each of them produces a different kind of result in terms of skillful approaches in the world. To reflect on the negativity can develop within oneself an awareness of what is real and what is true and the pains that are in the world and a, a kind of intention and a commitment, a sense of courage, right? a determination to work on it. Damn, this world is filled with pain and hindrance. I should dedicate as much of my life as I can to overcoming the roots in myself and sharing this with others because the world is so do you know what I mean? So reflecting on that can have a very positive result. Just as reflecting on the reflecting on the goodness in the world can have the positive result of lightening your heart, bringing joy to you, and giving you more sort of energy mm-hmm. to then determinedly pursue the path of helping to free beings and oneself. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So they both are like di- different parts of a, a smorgasbord of skills. Yeah. Well, and
4: that's what's nice about the video is it starts with the what's wrong with the world.
5: And. Mm-hmm. And acknowledging
4: that. The technology and greed and pollution and how we really have dug ourselves into a hole. But then, okay, we it. in fact, they use videos from TV like those, I never find them funny, but funniest home videos where people get hurt. Oh, yeah. And people think that's hysterical. I've never figured that out. Um, but, But they're showing the pain that's out there as a way of saying, okay, this is what's wrong with the world, but it's because I'm doing it. Not me personally, but yeah, me personally. But all of us are doing it, and we need to choose something else as an antidote for that. So it's not ignoring the negativity, it's recognizing it, it's reflecting on it. But it's also not getting stuck in it and not allowing it to be the focus of our lives, nice. because so much of what we get fed from society today—I mean, even in commercials—is sure. is just making us feel horrible. Right. And we drag that crap around.
2: Well, you can. Some people drag around an angry, you know, self-righteous attitude about it, and all they want to do is criticize and be angry. And they're right. There's something to be angry about, but to stop there is very
6: unfortunate. If you tell somebody it's important that you were so undermined, it's about the equivalent of throwing a drink in their face. Almost as bad as kicking them in the balls. Not welcome. Nobody ever says, "Oh, thank you for pointing out." Rednecks, what? For a while, Which can be interpreted two ways. <laughs> 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 I'm afraid to put my car car is good. This, has been, this has been most interesting.
0: I think you know, the point that you're making is really good, which is is that you know, we need to bring skillful means to what it is that we're encountering, both um, in ourselves as as well as in each other. And, you know, certainly with my papa, he was a master of deflecting all of my brilliance as a meditation teacher. So I had to learn early on that it was categorically impossible for me to try and teach my father how to meditate. But what I could do with him was I could um, I could do it osmotically. I could inhabit another way of being in myself that he could get energetically. And every single time I had contact with him, every single time I had contact with him, he would usually notch up somewhere between four and five notches just yeah. from having contact. Yeah. You can
6: see why. You know. If you were my daughter, I'd say, How can you believe anything that person says? She hangs out in India, she has bitten by bears <laughs> and she not learn a lesson from New York City Hedgehog How can you
0: believe her perception? <laughs> I want
6: to talk
0: to somebody who feels way. So we, so I had to learn how to deal with him, which was just that I would never give him instructions. Well, your father
6: said goodbye in a nice way.
0: <laughs> and so you know, with different people, different skillful means are needed, and it's not only a question of how much they trust you, but how, where they're at in their own practice. Meeting them where they are. Exactly. You know, totally meeting them where they are and also rejoicing in the good things that they have in them. Because part of what happens for people is they get locked into their own negativity, they don't see their own goodness. So when they begin to see their own goodness, then that gives them space for seeing goodness in other places as well. Yeah.
5: This is wonderful. Today's conversation meditation really great. Um, I'd like to share kind of my story related to Thursday night's topic of trauma, particularly childhood trauma, because to me it it really validates so much of what was said Um, and maybe is an illustration of when we don't know that there's been childhood trauma.
7: Mm.
5: I, uh, my Getting to this, started probably in, oh, a bit more than 20 years ago um, and I had a lot of TMJ and I had had for years. What is uh, that? Aching, aching in the jaw, oh. TMJ, don't know. you know, your know? yeah. jaw is tight and it may be due to, a you know, misfit, mm-hmm. or it may be due to tension the job Or emotional or, trauma. Or emotional trauma, you got it. And uh, uh, I was taking 12, 14 aspirin a day, and had been for a long time, and I had been to dentists and oral surgeons and desensitizing mouthwashes and all of this to try to get this to loosen up. And nothing really worked, and and uh, I'm not sure why. I I, I lived in birth very recently moved there, and moved there in 89, um, and I went to a, it was my first experience with massage, and I went to um, a young woman who did massage and told her, I really don't want to the rest of my life take this much aspirin, but that was the only thing that would relieve it, and uh, that was a good idea not to take that much aspirin, so she started working on me, and... and um, especially the tension in my neck and shoulders up in here, and my jaw, and uh, get the, you know, we got the aspirin amount to back off quite a lot, but then the progress kind of stopped, and she knew she wasn't getting further. And so she referred me to a, a, a chiropractor in Loveland who uh, does alternative uh, medicine um, a lot of craniosacral stuff, I have experience with that. Anyway, so Dr. Pusheen started, you know, when she put her hands on my head, she told me later, she never felt a head that was so rigid. And I didn't know that my head was rigid, you know, that it's supposed to have movement. Uh, and it was just, uh, completely rigid, no, it didn't move. And... So we started this long uh, two or years. Uh, she, I, I felt generally better because she also worked on the rest of my body, but she would do a lot of craniosacral work here, and it didn't take long to identify that there's a very black spot, an area to the left back in here. Very black. And she could, she could sense it with the work she was doing. And I could tell it was there. And so she started talking to me about it. Questions like, what color? And I go, there's no color. It's black. There was color other places, but not there. Mm. As my head started to loosen, mm. um, but I said, there's no color. And you know. we do other things, and she wondered about um, dreams after she she had done some work, and, you know, just what was coming, if anything was coming up, trying to get to where this came from. And uh, no dreams, it's black, this went on for a long time. She thought maybe this woman in Fort Collins might have a little bit different approach, and so I went there, and um, that woman did similar similar work, but took me farther, this goes to your working around the edges until the body is ready, took me farther and I had a panic attack. It was kind of like, I don't know how you force someone to go into an area that they're not ready for, man. I have a little panic attack. And so I kept going back to sharing. This went on for years. And she kept working. And one day I said, There's some color. It's a little yellow, a little blue. It's not just black anymore. Yeah. So we kept going over literally years. as she would adjust me and, oh, she sent me to. It did mouth work, and you know, I was listening up, there was no question about that. But this area was still black, and it was like I think we both knew when it was no longer black, I would have gotten somewhere. She started asking me about traumas, and I don't, don't know of any. And I said, Well, you know, I remember when I was a kid, something about you know, a fall or something, and she asked me about what age I was, and I told her. She said, that's not it. You were like 10 to 12 years old. I don't know where that was coming from. And, um, you know, so I talked to my mom. Did I miss something? You know, was I physically abused? Was I emotionally abused? Was I sexually abused? There was something that was so deep That I was blocking out that spot, and I'll try to make this short. Kept going. Not much more color. Sometimes it would just be black. Sometimes it would let her in a little bit. And um, after a lot of sessions, like doing and and with different people, one day she was. You feel like this. She was there. And I said, "I know where I am." She gotten through to the trauma, and it was a trauma that I knew of in my mind, but I didn't know it was there. And she said, "Where are you?" I said, "I've had my tonsils out. I bled." I hear the doctor talking about my taking me back to surgery because I was bleeding, and to kind of redo. And so I went back, and they took me back to surgery. And some of you are old enough to have experienced perhaps ether. Mm -hmm. And that feeling as you're going under with ether, do you know what I'm talking about? It, it's, a, it, it's a strange sensation and it's, it's like it just pulls out, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that pulling out. With the second surgery, I heard the doctor talk about it. they didn't know what was happening, why it was happening. And um, with the second surgery, I tried to fight the ether. I said, mm-hmm. put the ether on me. I tried to fight its effect by not breathing. I guess that's the flight mm-hmm. aspect. And It was just at that time I knew I knew what I. Mm-hmm. I, I could have talked about
0: having had the surgery. So, I, so the, it it it, it to shut down. So the body has a way of holding things, and there's it a held it, that's it, right. And, and so there's what. Well no, and so that what you're describing is a is the kind of tenderness and care and commitment that's needed in order to touch something and allow it to open up. But also, what you're describing is an experience that many wouldn't necessarily register as a traumatic thing. Like, no, I didn't. Like, I mean, I was aware of it. Right, right. Like, so last Thursday night I was talking about the trauma of getting into sheets with, with fabric softener, you know. You don't normally think of fabric softener as a traumatizing thing, mm-hmm. you know. But when your system is reacting in a particular way, and then there's certain kinds of mechanisms that actually get activated, and particularly in that situation of going into unconsciousness, where they're actually putting you out, the way that is registered in your system, it has really quite a significant impact, particularly when you wake up and you don't know where you are. And so, you know, the the tenderness that's needed to touch and meet that, and the care, and to not push it too hard, and to stay with what you know, and to keep moving through the different skills of different people, and then to watch, you know, eventually there was a little bit of color. It was beginning to shift. And then eventually the story emerged as to what actually the situation was. And so it's a beautiful telling of you know, how one cannot have any clue that this is actually what's going on. But when the stuff opens up, then there's um, a body experience as well as images that come and mental um, memories and uh, associations of the fear of fighting and all of that. And and what's just needed is to make sure that, that you're wherever you are, where the stuff is opening, that it's safe. It's safe. That's and it's right. Efficient. That's right. That's right. You're safe and you're patient and trusting that it has its own intelligence and it will unfold in its own way. And it, 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 just, it just blew my mind that's right. that's what it was. Right. Yeah. And of all yeah. Yeah. of so really things that could have totally locked up. So, you know, we have all kinds of ideas about what trauma is and those ideas sometimes are not helpful for us being able to track what's actually going on in our bodies because we think it has to be huge and big and violent and it doesn't necessarily end up being that way all the time, the way something can just lock in. But it's a lovely sharing. Thank you for
5: that. Well,
0: as you talked on Thursday, it was just like,
5: I'm getting it. Every, the, the different things you'd say That's about right. the, yeah. getting to um, it. Right. And, and the childhood trauma, yeah,
0: too. yeah. So I was in the wonderful too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And so, what you know, what I have observed in myself, as well as what I've seen in other people, is is that the more that we are able to track our own body sensations with this kind of skill, then we're able to open up and release the stuff that maybe we didn't even know we had access that was there. And then, as that stuff releases, our body relaxes, and then our body relaxes, and it allows us to do work in our meditation practice to integrate the insights into more uh, parts of who we are. So what happens when we don't have that access to the trauma is that the insight is not invalid, but it's almost as if there's a wall where that wall is then keeping those insights from integrating into various different aspects of who we are. And, you know, I have done it and I have seen it. You can have people who are brilliant in a dhamma seat. They give absolutely magnificent dharma talks. They get up and there is chaos everywhere they go and everything they touch because they haven't figured out how to bring the brilliance of what they know into the reality of how they live and what they do yeah and so you know to touch this stuff that begins to bring these these compartmentalized parts of who we are back into a whole it's a it's a wholeness it's it's a it's a it's a flow it, there's communication I know where stuff is tight. I know what is relaxed. I know what things I need to work on. You know, I'm in touch, and the body stuff that I have is much less. You know, so I have had all kinds of issues with illnesses. But as some of this stuff lightens up, the illnesses release. You know, so it's not as if the illnesses were entirely psychosomatic. But there's a thin membrane between the way our body and minds, our minds affect our bodies, our bodies affect our minds. There's, there's a membrane that's porous. And as we do work on one level, it impacts and, and affects the other.
1: There's something that i like to share about empathy, or ask you a question about empathy and sympathy and all that, and i noticed as I age, when I was younger and somebody close to me or a friend had a real serious illness, they might be dying of cancer or something. I could be so sympathetic and you know want to do, make them a plate of cookies or whatever to make them happy. But now that I'm older, <laughs> when I hear somebody that's dying of cancer, I have this. Phew, it's not me. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's some kind of thing with age. And uh, we were at a function last night, and a friend of mine. Uh, his uh, grandchild spent the month with her, and the mother was sort of in and out, in and out. And this kid picked up that when his nana was talking, she was talking from wisdom, and he, well, for whatever reason, he paid attention to her. But when his mother talked to him, he'd actually counsel his mother you should listen to Nana because she's coming from wisdom, and this blew the, the, my friend away because she didn't realize that this seven-year-old, I think he was seven or eight years old, could actually come up with that. So there's what you talk about, this peace within, and I find out, because you know, we're at this age now, where we're seeing, you know, a lot of friends and family dropping like flies, you know, and you just sort of go back like. Bull, I missed the bullet that time. <laughs> so like, so what, you know, and I don't mean to get callous, you know, but you do kind of get, with age, you have a different perspective.
2: It's been yeah. pretty, pretty real. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't It surprises me, to be honest, just because of my limited experience, I suppose. I've, I've not heard of such a response, sort of, someone talking about this coming with age, and, Don't take my surprise as a defensive comment. It's my limitation, I think, in encountering people here. Perhaps due to my Buddhist practice, and I don't mean to compare myself to you, but I'll give an alternative response. The more I hear people getting sick and die, the more I realize the awareness of my own fragility, and the more it causes me to want to be better prepared for my own dying. Do you know what I mean? I I, I don't have the release sense. I have the sense that this is a lesson. Do you know what I mean? This is a lesson. I'm dying anyway, right? I mean, I'm not going to be here in 60 years, 70 years. Do you know what I mean? Right? I might be here 10. Might be here a month, Right? I mean, we're all dying, right? And so the, the relief sense that it's not me. Well, it's going to be you eventually. It, it really, really is, right? And so in some ways, I feel it, it, it's helpful if you can work with that sense that it's not me, and because that's a kind of resistance, I think actually, right? And to work with it and to say, well, what if it is me? Or in fact, it is me, but not yet. Mm-hmm. You may not die of cancer. You may die of natural causes. But most people these days, even if they live to be 95, it's usually said to be some kind of environmental illness, of cancer or something. Do you know what I mean? Eventually, these things catch up with us. It's not just the heart stopping, right? And it's going to be you 30 years from now or 10 or 5 or months and we just don't know Right? And phew, it's not me, it kind of, excuse me for saying so, is a kind of reaction that can reaffirm the sense that I'm going to be here for a long time. Which is a kind of clinging. And I think it's helpful when someone else dies to allow it not to reinforce the clinging, but to reinforce a tendency towards unclinging, towards softening. Ah, here's death. I'm going to be dealing with it too. Is there a way that I can help them that will both help them and help me deal with my own death, which is absolutely inevitable. Right? I mean, it really, really is. In some way, the Buddhist practice that we're talking about here can be summed up in terms of letting go. And the letting go practice is, in some ways, a preparation for dying, which is the big letting go, right? Which all of us are going to have to deal with at some point or another. So I think in some ways, maybe you can you can use this as a, 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 a little nudge to remind yourself that it's not really a cue, <laughs> Your own, in a sense, as if you're getting away with something, because it's going to get at you some point. Yeah. So use this as an opportunity to realize your own, mm-hmm. not immortality, mortality,
1: and to come back. Uh-huh. I guess in I'm feeling guilty that I'm not as sympathetic as I <laughs> 20 years ago. Well, I think her observation is really,
3: my observation is really significant, because it was easier when you were, mm-hmm. maybe not really, but um, in your mind you were further away from death to be sympathetic. Yeah. And now that it's it's, it's really a little hard. closer, you're reacting, I think, in a very human way that, wasn't me. You know, and it's... it's
2: where well, you never would have imagined that when you were there. Yeah. Yeah, so there's yeah. that distance right. there that I think is really significant that's affecting
3: how you're perceiving this. I think what you said is really useful, but I just think maybe that realization will help you have a better understanding of why you're having a different reaction now than you did when you were... Uh-huh.
0: What I I would just add into this is is that, and I've noticed this with my mom, you know, so my mom is an incredibly um, charismatic, active, engaged, dynamic person, and as she's gotten older, you know, she feels more vulnerable, she feels more fragile, and, you know, as she's not able to do the number of things that she was before, there's a a kind of, there's a, a letting go with that, yeah? And so my sense is is, is that what, what might be needed is to touch the the vulnerability of what you experience with with compassion, rather than with any sense of judgment that it shouldn't be that way. Like guilt. Yeah. yeah. Because that pulling back is coming from and you know I, I agree with what David said, but it's coming coming from an inability to to, to touch what's there because of of an underlying recognition of your own vulnerability. And to meet that with compassion, to really meet that, your own vulnerability with compassion, may be a, a window or a doorway for things to open up in another way. Yeah. Because we are vulnerable. And the older we get, the more it becomes apparent how vulnerable we are and how fragile life was. Because, you know, the story with that bear was a lovely story. It could have been a very different story. And I was very aware of that. It's the
6: same story. Your reaction to it could have been very different. Your reaction could be to carry a 44 Magnum in your purse, never get out of the car, carry the airspray, which some people would say is a completely reasonable attitude, stay out of Alaska, hang and drive the guns. But wasn't your reaction. No. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. But I think, you know, that's what we're with, is is—is is that just the, the, the realities of life are affecting us and and how we experience them is something that we need to meet with tenderness and compassion and then see what happens with that.
2: I really appreciate Anna adding on to my comments because I think that needed to be added to what I said. That, you know, the kind of practices we're talking about here of sitting and being aware of our own body, one of the things you can do, and I have a long list of similar things myself, is to, to sit and maybe reflect on that response of yours, and as Amma says, rather than react against it and judge it, to honor it in a sense, this is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling scared. I'm glad I'm not dying. And, and to open to that, and to hold it gently, and, and loving it. compassion towards yourself, she means, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scared here. I mean, We all are a thing, most of us. When I think of death, I think less of the fear of dying is the fear of a painful death. For some reason, that comes to me more than anything else. Not a, not, not going, but I don't want it to be a car, a car crushing. couch. I don't know why. That's like a hang-up I have. I've been working on this, do you know what I mean? We each have our own hang-ups, you know? You could go with past life experiences, whatever it might be, I don't know. Like, that's where my mind goes. According I, to the latest research,
4: you're not there anyway, that it takes a certain amount of time for the yeah. synapses to connect I, I, in
2: your yeah, brain, yeah, exactly. and by I the time that. it registers, you're already gone. I know <laughs> that research is not helping me. It's thoughts, you. Know? So, it's not a big deal. When I think about these things, you know, it's like it's like the slow, crushing one where you are there. <laughs> I mean, for whatever. But then I, I I actually sit with that sometimes. Yeah. And I remind myself, yeah, I am afraid of that. Why? And then I remind myself of the ways in which I deal with pain now in my life that are minor forms of pain. And I'm actually really good with pain. I I always have been. And so it's like, and I try to ease myself into thinking, why are you so afraid of a painful death? You know, it's like, it's probably going to be okay, David. With some of the tenderness that I'm suggesting. And I try to sort of soothe myself into confronting this very vulnerability or fragility that is absolutely core to our being. We're vulnerable and fragile all the time. You know, and we have to sort of softly, although sometimes there's stuff that's too big we can't open up immediately to, but softly and gently open to it with tenderness, I think, as she says. It's, it's, it's really helpful.
7: So I was just going to say you. that sometimes just the opposite occurs, that if you, you were mentioning death at an older age, death at a younger age, at 19 or 20, if you see a lot of death, uh, for instance of a lot of our young people are going through this now during the war. Sure. See, a lot of death, it can help awaken you decades before you would be awakened mm-hmm. under the normal progression of just, you know, our day-to-day life, you know, going to work, coming home, so that you, you it, it's, a, it's a different type of awakening yeah. that can occur at, a, uh, at an earlier age where you don't really have the, the, to absorb it at that age, but over time it becomes clearer and clearer. Yeah. You know, the sanctity right. of, 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 of it as mm-hmm. opposed to the, you know, certainly there's the who, I missed the bull at that time kind of stuff, but there's a different kind of perspective, mm-hmm. uh, different kind of yeah. openness, I guess you might call it, to, to the reality of it sure. as opposed to the, to the fantasy of it. hmm like old people like our grandfather, my grandmother, right. they die, uh, right, but not 19, 20
2: year olds. Well, in the literary textual tradition of many of the great masters in the Asian Buddhist traditions, the biographies say that many of them at a young age turned to the contemplative path because of deaths of their parents, their grandparents, their mm. friends. And at a young age, we're like, wow, we're, we're all dying. You know, kind of like the Buddha. Discovered his path when he saw deep suffering and old age and illness and death, and he's like, nobody's trained I'm trained in all these other wonderful ways as a prince in his palace, but nobody's trained me how to deal with this, the deepest core stuff of our life, old age, and death. He's like, I need to work on this, right? So that has prompted many people to turn quite wise into a
5: path of contemplation and service. When I first started meditating, which was group in the congregation. I remember the congregational church because the visual of the window yeah. um, I swear every guided meditation and every little chat talk you did was on impermanence so it seemed to me because that sunk in that sunk in and, and I thought about life being impermanent and um, that's such an important that was such an important. What a concept! I mean, obvious, it's so so obvious, and yet to let it sink into where this is what that means, you know, with, re, with, really, with regard to my dying, other people's dying, and whatnot. I really felt felt it, felt the mm, the emotion related to. Um, my mother, who is not close to dying right now, I mean, she's a big age, getting pretty darn close. You know, the emotion of what that would feel like, of, of what it felt like to think about that instead of not thinking about mm-hmm. it, in, n- not feeling it, thinking about it, not feeling it.
2: No, we can think about it. I can give brilliant lectures on it, right? But I mean, sort of sort of just sit, really sit with, with nice. your own body and know it. On, <laughs> on
5: impermanence, that yeah seemed like it was coming over and over and over again, or maybe that's what I needed. That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. But it was good. I mean, it was good for me to have that right in front. Of me.
2: Well, we haven't brought that up as an explicit theme here, but in many ways it's what we're talking about. It's in the background of everything we're talking about in terms of awareness yes. and letting go. yeah,
0: totally. And death is, um, the contemplation, the right contemplation of death really helps create um, focus and priorities about how we want to live our life. Yeah. Because when we understand the inevitability of it, the uncertainty of it, um, then it's really helpful to have our business finished every day. You know. We don't know in any person if it's going to be the last time we see them. You know, I had no idea when I saw my dad the last time it was going to be the last time I saw him. There have been a hundred times when I was... I didn't know when I saw them the, the last time. I thought it would, might be the last time. But the actual last time I saw him, it never once crossed my mind that that was going to be the last time I was going to see him. You know. So it's like, you know, it really is helpful to stay current and to finish our business and to go to sleep at night as clear as we can be, both that we don't have regrets as well as to uh, spend some time to appreciate the blessings and the, and the goodness of what we have experienced what we have received what we have offered and to and to recognize that by doing that we we share the the merits of our of our lives with other beings in a way that increases the goodness of our life I really loved it when Ken Rinpoche was here and he talked about the image of you know the reason why we share blessings at the end of the teaching he says it's a little bit like when you have a glass of water out in the Sun in the summertime you know it's gonna evaporate but when you share blessings it's like pouring that glass of water into the ocean it is never gonna evaporate and so to share blessings to actually consciously and deliberately think of the goodness that has come from what we have done together and to let that goodness radiate out and to be shared with all beings in every direction is to return the field of goodness back into a, a source, into a into a field that is not something that can be diminished by the fluctuations of our own capacity to stay committed and clear in our practice.
2: Maybe we can end on that now. Final comment. So thank you all for coming. Um, I'd like to add about dana in the Buddhist tradition, especially related to the connection between lay communities and monastic communities. Um, it's called A Profound Interdependence and, and we didn't think um, about the goodness that comes from generosity. As Alma said earlier, the, it's, it's not just a practice that is aimed at bringing benefits to the recipient. It's touching the goodness that's in our heart when we are generous and it's a very powerful blessing for ourselves to do good things. Generosity does not just mean with money. It can mean with goods, it can be with our energy, it can be with our words, it can be with our time. It can be with our patience. There are many, many ways to be generous. But within the context of supporting monastics, there are particular ways that generosity is needed. And the kind of goodness that comes from it fits in precisely with what I was just saying. If we think about impermanence and how limited our lives are, and the certainty that we will die at some point, with the uncertainty about time, which are both facts. There's the two things we know about death. It will happen, but we don't know when. Then to think about how to live our life with the best integrity of accumulating and sharing blessings, and generosity in the Buddhist tradition is arguably the foundational ethical principle. Um, So to think about the various ways in which we can be generous and to make the most of each of our days through that, Please, if you can, leave a contribution. in the. And then we'll just think for a moment of brief dedication to end here. Um, may we dedicate the goodness of our time and energy here together, our ability to teach, to listen to teachings, and to share with one another. May whatever goodness comes from this be directed towards all of our transformation, that our hearts become more open and more free More kind and more energetic, and that these energies bring blessings to ourselves and to the world. So may we not hold on to the goodness of these teachings only for ourselves, but wish that they radiate in waves in whatever way possible to touch other sentient beings. Thank you.
7: Thank you for listening.